for listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine Strong, and today I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Michael Smith. Dr. Smith is a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and functional medicine. For most of the last 20 years, Dr. Smith has combined the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and evolutionary nutrition with the ancient healing wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. He has seen this combination of healing modalities help hundreds of people resolve or at least find relief from many of the illnesses that plague modern society. These consistently positive and inspiring results continue to fuel Michael's passion for staying abreast of new research, new protocols, supplements, and dietary strategies. Another source of passion is his own personal journey with health, disease, and the long road to recovery. Welcome, Dr. Michael Smith. Thanks, Janine. So I'm glad to be here. I've been listening to your show. I love your style. Oh, thank you very much. I try to keep it, uh, you know, kind of flexible, loose, um, fun. <laughs> so I'd like to start with your personal story uh, of health and disease, and, and then we can get into talking about medical cannabis and the other areas that you work with with people. Sure. So my story is uh, probably like one of many millions of people. Um, in my 20s, I was a professional athlete. And, you know, so I'm training six hours a day, super fit, super on my health and diet and supplements and all the good things that we need to do to be well. And uh, one of my coaches suggested that I become a vegetarian. And mm. I thought I'd give that a try. Uh, which was a really, you know, interesting shift for for me because I actually grew up in a hunting lodge just off uh, the High Bar Reserve up in the Chilcotin in British Columbia. So I grew up basically on moose meat and berries. <laughs> oh wow, this would be quite so, a change for you. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a shift. Uh, but it took a few years before I started to feel a little bit off, and then I started to get really, really unwell. It wasn't just because I was vegetarian. Uh, at the time, I was also starting a school of Chinese medicine. I was in a stressful relationship. A lot of other stuff was happening. Um, so whatever the actual you know, combination of thresholds and stressors and things that finally pushed me over the edge, I went from 165-pound fighting weight to basically 112 pounds in the hospital, literally in a room with three old men who – and I always, almost come to tears talking about this. Oh I'm goodness. lying in this bed. I'm a professional fighter and I'm dying and I'm partially begging the nurses to kill me because the pain was so bad. Mm. I had severe Crohn's ankylitis at the same time, oh my goodness. which was not fun. And uh, anyway, so these three old men are trying to cheer me on in the middle of the night while I'm, you know, <laughs> screaming and moaning and <laughs> freaking out. Aww. So it was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty powerful moment, you know, to to just sort of recognize that there's at some point for each of us, you know, we need to hit that kind of reset button of humility and, and patience and learning because I realized I had to go back eating the way I did as a child. I couldn't exercise six hours a day anymore. I had to kind of revamp a, a few other things because, you know, once, once you tear your immune system apart, it, it doesn't just bounce back, you know, you know, like a puppy. It, it takes a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do know yeah, that. I, I think it took me about a year uh, of being very, very dedicated to uh, focusing on the autoimmune component of my health uh, before I was back to 165 pounds and, and you know, training people again and a lot, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people uh, in my clinic, uh, you know, especially with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, things like that. Uh, it takes a couple of years to, to really get back to where you, you know, where you were before. 
Yeah, I've I I think it can be hard not to be discouraged because um I think a lot of people don't realize that it is going to take time. It, it isn't just going to happen in a month or two or it takes time for the body to repair itself and build itself back up. Yeah, and I think one thing that I probably have this conversation with everyone at some point, you know, it's inevitably going to be a change in lifestyle because if you do have complex autoimmunity there's a bunch of stuff you cannot do you know probably more than three days in a row you know if that's mm -hmm. pizza or beer or uh, <laughs> something else so uh, you know some people are just like you know gripping onto the steering wheel of whatever protocol they're on hoping to get back to the lifestyle they had before they got sick and in almost every case if you're you know in a really complicated situation it's a it's a fork in the road. You don't get to go back and and play the you know the games we were playing before, uh, with respect to you know toxic intoxicants and and you know processed foods and being a big ball of scary stress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that metaphor that it's a fork in the road. <laughs> sure you, is. <laughs> you, you can't go back. You really can't. Oh, well, we all try though. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow. So when you went through this, were you already studying medicine or did this happen after? Uh, it happened just after me finishing my training. Um, and my training was actually quite weird. Maybe the word would be unusual. <laughs> <laughs> so I got into studying Chinese medicine as a martial artist uh, who was on a road to becoming a Taoist priest. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to find these old, you know, Taoist masters and hermits and elders and teachers and stuff. And uh, one of the people I was studying with, and I mean, this might be a different podcast, but he was actually one of the teachers of Bruce Lee mm -hmm. uh, in Seattle. I was training with guy, this man, uh, Fu Yuk Yong, who again was uh, one of Bruce Lee's teachers. Bruce lived with him back in Seattle. So I was in Seattle training with this old master, and he sat me down one day, and he was doing some medical qigong on a broken bone that hadn't healed right in my hand, because mm -hmm. when you punch everything, you're going to break your hand. Mm. <laughs> it was a phase I went through. Anyway, <laughs> he's working on my hand, and he looks at me, and he says, you know, your capacity as a, as a fighter is, is pretty good, but maybe you should look at uh, your capacity as a healer. And I kind of looked at him with that, you know, tilted head look of dogs going, because huh? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, no, I'm going to be a priest and a warrior. I mean, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, um, you know, because he was doing this healing thing on my hands, he was opening up meridians and doing all the fun things that shamans do. And he says, you know, your deepest nature is, is that of a healer, not that of a fighter. And I'm like, okay, that's, you know, in my mind, I'm 20 something going, that's your opinion, old guy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I sat with it for a while. And then I, you know, cause I was, uh, I was living in Vancouver at the time, so I was traveling down to, to train with him every month. So I went back down again, um, and I said, well, do you have any advice on you know what that would look like? Because I had actually kind of looked at some Chinese medicine schools and going to China, and uh, he said he'd look around and, and check it out. And it took about a year, and I was actually at the end of that year, just about, it was actually four days before I had sent... Uh, some checks to Chuangtu in China to go to school there. Uh, he had said that there was a, a friend of a friend who was, you know, uh, doing this public gathering. So I went and met some people, and I actually ended up studying with uh, an old guy. His name is Liang Jiaxuan, and he has a 15 generation father to son tradition of Chinese medicine. He started mm. uh, started studying at the age of four. Oh my goodness! And his father, um, when he turned 18. Um, said, okay, now you can do Na, which is Chinese like medical massage. And he, he had to do that for six years before his father would let him use acupuncture needles. 
Oh my goodness. So when we were training uh, under, you know, with his family's lineage, that was the kind of the rule is you have to do enough body work before using a needle is going to be effective because as most people, when you think of acupuncture, you think of somebody and you look at that hand with that big scary needle in it and you're going, oh boy, here, here it comes. But mm -hmm. what's really important is that it's your other hand. So I'm right-handed. So it's actually my left hand that does most of the really intelligent work because that's like my antenna hand. It finds exactly where things are blocked or where people are in the most pain. It helps me, you know, assess and diagnose all kinds of subtle things. So uh, that was a big part of that training. And what was interesting was in his family, again, it goes back 15 generations, but they also are the inheritors of what's called the Huan Yuan tradition of Taoism, which actually goes back 7,000 years. Hmm. So, you know, I got to both study into a deeper tradition of Taoism, and eventually I gave up on the priest thing and became a doctor. And again, like I said, it was a phase. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But, uh, you know, it, it was fun. Wow. And uh, so now I get to carry this 7,000-year-old tradition of uh, oral tradition of Taoism and oral tradition of Chinese medicine, because he was not a fan of any of the modern books on, on in Chinese medicine. In fact, I think he said if if you're reading a book that's written past 1742, it's complete BS. <laughs> wow. Oh, that I that is so amazing. It's so exciting how you were in the flow and you know how it all unfolded and evolved for you. It's very exciting. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know being around horses most of my life. I probably swallowed a, a horseshoe at some point, and it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> That's awesome. Or maybe I've been kicked by enough horses that a horseshoe got stuck somewhere. I don't know. But <laughs> I've only been kicked a few times, not too many. Actually, my horse used to like to stand on me, yep. and and he he he'd put his foot on my foot, and then or his hoof, and then he'd lean in the little shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got bucked off a horse when I was a kid. I was going double bareback with a friend, and I think I was six, and this old 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 horse that I thought was safe knocked me off, put its foot on my chest, pawed my shirt to the side, stood on my shirt. And wouldn't let me up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Basically, so oh. little guys is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. Okay, so let's get to cannabis. How did you become interested in medical cannabis? And uh, Well, living in Nelson, British Columbia, <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know anything about Nelson, British Columbia, it was 2007 in Amsterdam that we were given the award for the best outdoor uh, uh, marijuana or cannabis in the world. So oh, this, really? This, I didn't yeah. even know that. <clears throat> so um, this part of the country uh, in Canada is basically a mecca of uh, basically being a bit more permissive around the use of cannabis. I mean, the police are doing their job, you know, in the sense of if you're getting carried away or if you're doing something foolish, you'll, you know, get into trouble. But it's actually been kind of the base economy here because there's really no other big industry. So mm -hmm. for, ever since I moved here back in 1996, uh, it's been basically the, the base of the economy. So, right. so now that it's becoming, you know, decriminalized, perhaps legalized, perhaps whatever the present government's going to try and do with it, um, at least now it's kind of on the streets because it was about a year ago we had we had more dispensaries in Nelson, British Columbia than we had traffic lights. <laughs> 
Well, I often say, you know, in most cities, uh, when you're walking down the street, you smell cigarette smoke. In Nelson, <laughs> you, you smell pot. <laughs> yeah, you can usually say, ooh, that's a, that's a really nice, you know, <laughs> strawberry jerry. That's a really great stray. <laughs> it's like fine wine. <laughs> so honestly, right. just to answer your question, um, it's kind of by, by default because so many of my patients either use cannabis or they smoke weed in the sense of, you know, uh, the recreational or kind of just uh, superficial use of cannabis. Uh, so mm-hmm. I've just had over the last 20 years really figure out what's working and what's not. Because I'm an educator and I teach functional medicine and Chinese medicine uh, to other clinicians, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I kind of have to, by default, stay at the leading edge of all of this stuff or else I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These people are calling me saying, you know, what, what, how does this work with that? And um, I'm a researcher-holic and I don't sleep very much, so I have lots of spare time to look <laughs> stuff up. So now I'm actually going to be teaching a course um, it's coming up called Medical Cannabis for Clinicians, Patients, and Caregivers. And it's going to be about a 20-hour deep dive into all things medical cannabis, especially with respect to – and this is where I get all passionate. So if I run all over the place, just tell me to sit. <laughs> <laughs> um, my passion with respect to medical cannabis is how you can use it in conjunction with other herbs, especially Chinese herbs, Ayurvedic herbs, Western you know, native herbs, uh, nutraceutical medicines. Uh, for example, and we can get into this you know, when we decide to go into a bit of a geek out, but if you take CBD, uh, which most mm-hmm. people listening about cannabis will have some idea about, and you mix it with something like vitamin D, and then you, mm-hmm. you take three times a day together – that combination alone will completely stop your immune system from erratic autoimmune like disarray. Wow. Mm-hmm. So why don't you, maybe this would be a good spot to to talk about what the difference is between THC and CBD so people know what you're talking right. about. So we all, most of us know that if you smoke or ingest, uh, you know, cannabis products, you're either going to get high or not, depending on what's in the actual product. So um, we have THC, which is tetrahydrocannabidiol. It's um, a really, really interesting molecule because it looks very, very much like certain molecules inside of uh, a part of our physiology called the endocannabinoid system. So mm-hmm. before I maybe dive into THC and CBD really directly, I just want to talk a little bit about that system because that's actually the why of medical cannabis. Great. Sounds wonderful. Go for it. So the endocannabinoid system has existed in all basically skeletal-based life forms for three million years. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I mean, don, dinosaurs wow. would have got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's an in, uh, endogenous thing. We have it naturally. And this drives a little bit, uh, the people who are really against cannabis because they call it like Satan's lettuce or something, you know, for, for people who are just naturally reactively against anything fun or perhaps, you know, where people may lose a bit of control or, or something, they really get quite annoyed to realize that they're running on those molecules anyway. <laughs> Maybe not the exact molecules, but they're, you know, within our endocannabinoid system, which is actually a profoundly amazing regulatory system for our regulatory systems. Mm, so I'm just okay, so, little, so what does it do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what does it do? <laughs> so first off, let's look at regulatory things like neurotransmitters and hormones. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're always shifting and adjusting based on your stress, based on your uh, stimulation in the sense of you're having a nice, you know, calm, deep, eye-gazing, romantic conversation with someone. That's going to feel gooey and yummy in a certain way. <laughs> 
when you're sitting there, you know, beady-eyed with, you know, your hands on your six shooters at your hip, looking at Clint Eastwood in a cowboy movie, your hormones and neurotransmitters are doing something else. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just driving down the highway in the snow and you're, you, you know, you lose control of your car and it's spinning out. You're not going to be in the lovey gaze hormone neurotransmitter place. You're going to be freaking out. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm getting at at the regulatory systems. You know, regulatory makes us uh, makes us kind of think of a baseline middle ground, and that's what you're looking for. But our physiology can go from, holy crap, I'm crashing my car into a giant rock, or holy crap, I'm going to ask this person to marry me in five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. So, so we've got all this regulatory stuff going on with neurotransmitters and hormones, and then you look at the endocannabinoid system, and it regulates the regulators. Mm-hmm. Right, it fiddles with the receptor sites for serotonin and dopamine, all these other neurotransmitters. It changes the kind of gating mechanisms and rate mechanisms for the way our body triggers the signaling for like stress hormones, inflammatory hormones. Uh, you get really deep into the immune system, uh, digestive function, regulation of appetite hormones. Uh, in fact, if you're overweight, there's a whole new brand of research on how using a precise ratio of cannabinoids and other herbs and a specific ratio of foods is the fastest way to lose that kind of belly fat, but you can only do it um, if you're doing that conjunction of specific cannabinoids and a specific uh, lifestyle. And I, I mean, we, I don't know if we want to get into that in, in detail. Wow, but inter- oh, That's <laughs> fascinating. Well, I mean, obesity and overweight in general is just is such a problem now. It's a um, crisis. It's a crisis. It really is. And, uh, you know, so many people just, they try every, you know, quote unquote, everything. And most people end up gaining the weight back that they've taken yeah. off. I mean, it's really sad. And, and that's where the cannabis comes in, because most people who have tried... Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to find the polite way to say it because usually I use the really big scary words um, <laughs> I mean if anyone's been overweight and then they try the oh yeah futility experiment of restricting their calories and then trying to burn 3,000 calories a day mm-hmm. you know and the kind of the old aerobic kind of thing I'm going to eat salad and you know jump up and down in my leotards for three hours a day or something mm. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be an ass. I'm just no, no. I have, have fun with imagery. Yeah. But we've all been there. <laughs> the, the problem with that is you're technically in a starvation metabolism, right? And, and if you go back into human history, we've had lots of famines, lots of uh, foraging time, lots of feasting time. During a famine, you're going to be crawling around, pushing over rocks, you know, taking a nap, and then looking for bugs to eat. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be putting on your purple knee socks and leaping up and down. You're <laughs> you're going to be in a famine. Mm-hmm. And we have a metabolism that that works perfectly fine if you have a lack of food and you spend most of your time being pretty still. You know, you could probably go for a couple of months before you'd actually starve to death. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are with restricted calories telling our physiology that we're in a, in a relative famine and we're trying to burn 3,000 calories a day. What happens eventually is called leptin resistance. Right. Leptin's mm-hmm. a, a, basically an appetite-regulating hormone. Mm-hmm. And now you're hungry all the time no matter what. Mm-hmm. So you do your big fat loss regime and you lose the weight and your metabolism is still stuck in that metabolism. So you start going back to a normal diet and you're not punishing yourself in the gym. You will gain back all that weight way more rapidly than the last time and you'll gain another 15, uh, 5 to 15 pounds depending on the weight. Mm-hmm. 
So when you look at the regulation of those hormones, it's the use of things like CBD with a specific ratio to THC and, uh, and other uh, plant uh, mediators that actually eventually repairs the damage to the receptors that uh, eventually relieves the body of that resistance to that hormone. So now your leptin signaling works properly. Another hormone called uh, ghrelin that, that balances that out works mm-hmm. properly. Uh, and as most people know by now, uh, if you have more than five, ten pounds of uh, adipose tissue on your body, then you actually need for normal health. That those uh, cells produce their own estrogens, their own inflammatory mediating cytokines. Uh, they produce a, a thing that changes your ability to handle stress. Mm. Um, you, they, mm-hmm. they can keep you in a pro-inflammatory state depending on the actual ratio of what's called white to brown fat. So. It, it's really, really complex when you get into it, but when we go back to the simple kind of idea of regulating the regulators, if anything that's going on that's uh, endocrine-driven uh, or neurotransmitter-driven or inflammatory-driven, which is everything in mm-hmm. medicine, if mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> yeah. can, cannabis is going to be uh, one of the things that accelerates any protocol you're on. Interesting. And, and to be clear for people who don't know, CBD is not psychoactive it it doesn't make you high yeah so now we can get into the fiddly bits so if you could appreciate that between you know normal metabolism and regulatory function we have this endocannabinoid system that's again regulating everything uh, Mm -hmm. on a very subtle level then we want to look at what thc and cbd do okay so THC, uh, we all know, is psychoactive, and depending on the strain, which actually has more to do with what we call the entourage effect, which is, say you've got a famous person and they got five friends with them, mm-hmm. depending on which five friends they pick, that famous person may seem different, you know? Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. so if you have, um, I don't know, Bruce Willis comes into your restaurant and he's with five kids, well, you're going to probably be feeding him a family dinner and you'd expect a certain kind of evening to progress. Mm-hmm. If Bruce Willis came into your restaurant and he's got five bikers and they all look <laughs> rip roaring high, it's probably going to go another way. <laughs> so we're going to decide Bruce Willis is DHC. I'm probably going to get a letter in the mail from his agent. <laughs> so THC comes into your body and it's psychoactive. Uh, and again, depending on terpenes and other alkaloids, it's going to change that psychoactive thing from maybe feeling really sleepy and snuggly to feeling completely paranoid and full of self-loathing. And again, that's why I, I'm bringing this up is, you know, you really want to make sure you're getting the right kind of THC to get the, the effect. So once THC gets into your uh, bloodstream, it can affect uh, certain receptors in the endocannabinoid system because it looks like an endocannabinoid. And actually, that's why we call the endocannabinoid system what it is, because we first discovered THC, I think it was back in Israel, back in the 60s, when they actually first looked at the molecule and said, hey, that's actually what makes people high wait a minute, if that molecule can make humans high, humans have to have receptors for that molecule. And then they started looking and looking and looking at how that works, and then they found the endocannabinoid system, and they call it endocannabinoid because they found it by looking for something that looks like THC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of molecules that have a similar shape in, in the body, especially one called uh, anandamide, which if you take that word apart, ananda from a uh, a Sanskrit point of view means bliss. Mm-hmm. So they actually labeled the first endocannabinoid they found the bliss molecule. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. 
because in fact those that endocannabinoid system is uh, designed to regulate especially those kind of you know high peak stress moments and help us reco- recover more quickly. Mm-hmm. So when you're taking THC, what it's doing is binding to certain receptors, uh, specifically what's called CB1 and CB2. Mm-hmm. And when it binds to that receptor, it progresses a certain kind of neurological activity or hormonal activity. So it can regulate appetite, it can regulate stress, it can help you sleep, it can help you stay up, it can help you be less depressed or less anxious, depending on, on again, the strain, the entourage or other terpenes or alkaloids. And of course, if you're mixing it with, say, some Chinese herbs or uh, vitamin D or you know some other kind of anti-inflammatory or something. So again, THC, very, very potent, very important that you're aware what strain it is and what it's likely to do. If you're interested in accessing medical cannabis, give yourself a couple of weeks to get to know how your body responds to the, these kind of things, because you can have some really bad experiences if you take too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you're looking at... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I found, um, uh, because I've been using it for uh, an indica strain for sleep that I have to be really careful. I've been doing just drops at a time. If I take too much, I wake up with a hangover kind feeling, you know, or um, it's just like there's a fine line between it helping me have a really nice deep sleep and sleep all night without waking up and, you know, waking up feeling kind of crappy. So I'll come back to CBD in a sec because just it seems just topical to comment on what you said. So with the Indicas, yeah, if you take too much, you might wake up at 3 p.m. the next day trying to figure out how car keys work. (laughs) Right. Or like you said, you're going to wake up to your alarm clock and feel kind of fuzzy for an hour or two, Mm -hmm. which usually propels people to use a lot more caffeine. And then you're, you know, in this kind of weird dysfunctional over medication on two different sides of your metabolism because if you're knocking yourself out in the at night and then jamming yourself up in the morning you're not moving towards health right right right. so if you were to find the dose of your indica um say you're taking 15 milligrams uh, of thc as indica you know in your drops at night in a couple of hours you're going to feel kind of goofy and then you're going to go to bed and you're going to wake up feeling hopefully okay Mm -hmm. If you took 20, you might might wake up feeling a little bit crappy and heavy. If you took 30, you might wake up and really have a hard time organizing your your mind for a while. Mm -hmm. If you're taking 15 and you're getting an okay sleep, but you're not really feeling like it's really deep, Mm -hmm. instead of taking more THC, what you can do, believe it or not, is chew on some dried mango slices or have some mango puree, and you will get more effect from your indica. What is it about mango? So mango has a, a molecule in it called myrcene, which is called a terpene, and indica strains of cannabis are fairly high in myrcene as one of the entourage people who walk into the bar with Bruce Willis. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so now he's walking in with the, the Sandman for sleep, <laughs> because the more you can upregulate the effect of things like myrcene, um, the more you're going to get the effect of the, the soporific thing, which makes you sleepy. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to worry about uh, so much waking up feeling hungover. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hops also has mercine in it, which is why hops is such a popular sleep aid. Mm, got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, that, that's, again, my passion is saying, you know, instead of focusing on how stoned you might have to be to get through your life with cannabis as medicine, let's focus on how we can modulate the benefits of, of cannabinoids so you get the medical benefit without having to feel like you're a drug addict. Mm-hmm. 
because I've had days where I'm experimenting with, you know, my products or friends' products and stuff. And uh, if it's too strong, I mean, it was a year and a half ago, I was lying in bed for three hours begging the universe to make sure I got through that, you know, whatever I just did to myself. (laughs) Because I wasn't really paying attention to the the deeper chemistry. And, um, you know, it turns out that if you uh, make something called golden milk, Uh, the recipe for that's actually on my website, so maybe you could put my website in your show notes. Oh, but, absolutely. And you could say your website right now, too, if you'd like. That's integrativehealthsolutions.ca. And because microphones are the way they are, it's integrative, I-V-E, not mm-hmm. integrated. So uh, anyway, so you can get that recipe on the website. But if you take golden milk with THC, it's going to be between two and four times as directly impactful to your state of being because there's certain things in the golden milk that reset the sensitivity of the cannabinoid receptors to THC. Mm -hmm. So now it's running through your brain faster than ever. Which is why you might find yourself lying in bed for three hours begging the universe to, you know, <laughs> stop it from spinning so fast or something. <laughs> because, you know, I, when I first made that experiment, I was just experimenting. I didn't realize that the cannabis dose would be four times stronger than what I had actually took. Mm. And just to be clear for the listeners, I'm using cannabis medically for my autoimmune conditions, uh, as well as I use myself as a lab rat before I risk, you know, giving a 75-year-old grand- grandmother a dose of something that I hope isn't going to freak her out. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can be a fine line. It can be a very, very fine line. So that's maybe just a broad stroke with THC. There's probably a 300-page, I think I have 300 pages of distinct research on THC. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot to it. And then you look at CBD. CBD doesn't really affect the CB1 and CB2 uh, endocannabinoid receptors in any really meaningful way. It does alter their function slightly in a way, but it's pretty negligible. But what CBD does is it actually affects a whole different stream of regulatory pathways, uh, ion pathways, uh, immune system regulatory communication molecules, especially with respect to how the body triggers and communicates with uh, inflammatory uh, molecules. The thing that CBD is the most commonly referred to uh, doing, though, is it changes the regulatory activity of an enzyme called FAAH. And I'm not going to say it out loud because it's really long and isn't going to help anybody. (laughs) But that enzyme actually degrades what's called anandamide, which I mentioned before, which Mm -hmm. is that bliss neurotransmitter. So if it slows down the degradation of that, then it's going to keep your endocannabinoid system fairly balanced with respect to how THC affects your body. Because THC is a little bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a biker. Like it walks into your brain like a biker in a bar. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, my bar, my brain. And it can kind of... Uh, overtly and somewhat aggressively affect your neurotransmitter receptors. So I'm a, I'm a visual thinker, so I'm going to walk people through this kind of with some imagery because okay. um, audio can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So imagine just for the sake of uh, an image, a volcano. Mm-hmm. And imagine that a cell is a planet. And all your basic... Uh, all the receptor sites on a cell, like a volcano, you know, the, for the actual triggering enzyme or alkaloid or neurotransmitter to actually do anything, it kind of has to land inside the volcano on a planet. Mm-hmm. So there's a really interesting thing about how they actually get there. You know, how do you get an airplane to land in a volcano on a planet in two tenths of a second? It's it's pretty miraculous how that works in the body, really. But if you keep going to try and land the same molecule or the same plane in the same volcano, 
you know, or receptor, what actually happens physiologically is that the volcano or the receptor or the opening to activity with the body mm-hmm. retreats farther and farther down into the actual membrane of the, the neuron or, or that particular cell. It could be a liver cell, <clears throat> an immune cell, a fat cell. So once the the receptor sites become blunted or they retreat back a little bit, it's a lot harder for the body to uh, run that system. And then your brain becomes basically a THC-dominant neurotransmitter brain. And you can always see those people on the street or in dispensaries because they have that kind of mildly confused, surprised facial expression. They, They tend to kind of stagger a little bit. And they really have a very blunted affect. I mean, they, they have probably three emotions that they could, you know, remember or have regularly. And I'm not mm. saying pick on people. You, you use anything that's good too much, it can be bad. But that's mm-hmm. what chemically can happen to your brain. So because CBD uh, downregulates FAAH, which keeps the anandamide volume higher with respect to the volume of THC inside your brain and the rest of your body, the blunting effect of THC is in, in, in a way regulated because there's so many other flavors around that volcano or that receptor than just one heavy-handed uh, Bruce Willis in a biker jacket. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway... It's just to give us a sense that, and this actually drives the real like heavy stoners a little bit uh, crazy because they want to get really high, but they've taken some CBD and then they can't get really high mm. because mm. It's, it's again regulating uh, the entire spectrum of, of endocannabinoids in your system after you've dosed with some THC and CBD. So if you're again listening to this and you're uh, a big fan of getting super high and um, you're using cannabis uh, like Janine for sleep, Make sure you're not taking CBD with it. And say if you're not actually a person who's a fan of getting high, but you're a fan of really good sleep, and I'm a fan of really Mm -hmm. good sleep. But for some reason, about 15% of people, if they take CBD with THC before bed, they don't get to sleep. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's a lot of theory on that, and I've got my own theories, but I don't really have any conclusive you know, research-based evidence to share with people yet. But, I mean, I can say from my, my subjective experience as a patient, if I can mm-hmm. take some indica a couple hours before bed with some passionflower hops and some other Chinese herbs, I'm going to sleep fine, and I'm going to wake up without any sense of being uh, hungover or, or kind of sluggish. Mm-hmm. But for me, if I take CBD before bed, it doesn't do the same thing because I guess my brain needs that, you know, heavier push on those receptors to put me into sleep. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's your situation uh, as a listener, then try and take a bit more CBD in the morning and a bit of middle ground dose in the middle of the day and then skip your evening dose or have a minimal dose of CBD in the evening. Everybody else can usually take a fairly reasonable dose, five to 10 milligrams of CBD three times a day. And then if you take your THC at night for sleep about two hours before bed, it should work fine. Mm-hmm. So okay. just to be clear for the people who are using THC for pain relief, luckily CBD and THC together work fine with that. It's usually just the sleep thing that gets uh, any kind of interference with CBD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So People who are really just wanting to get high are looking for strains that have a high percentage of THC and, and hardly any CBD then, probably. Yeah, usually if you go anywhere past four to one, so that'd be four parts okay. THC, one part CBD. If you mm-hmm. get up to like one to one uh, or obviously higher than CBD than THC, then you're not going to notice the high in the same way at all. But for most people who enjoy the the kind of... 
disinhibition, the playfulness, the creativity, uh, the ease from stress, from depression, from anxiety, from obsessive thinking, from PTSD, uh, kind of, uh, you know, memories and stuff like that. That's the benefit of that is unmeasurable with respect to human health. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. just incredible how much across the spectrum of what we would call classifications of disease that this plant can bring relief to people. Now, if you're a fan of getting messed up, that's a recreational conversation to have fun, mm-hmm. be safe, don't drive a car. Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So how are sativa and indica strains different? So uh, pure sativa um, is, I guess, in its most like dramatic um, way of coming into the mind, is very much about hyper-focus and then hyper-creativity, mm-hmm. right? So there's a bit of focus and a bit of creativity, which are nice, but this kind of, you know, I've never actually had cocaine in my life, but I kind of assume that it kind of makes people a little bit hyper-focused, just being around people mm-hmm. who use it. So a sativa has that kind of excitatory uh, experience. So for people who are, I I know a lot of people in this part of the world, uh, I like trail running, and there's a lot of people who use a sativa before they go trail running so that they can really focus on gait, rhythm, body movement, uh, just because, you know, if you're a trail runner, it's more of a dance than it is like a a slog. Like, you know, if you're running down the highway, it's, it's concrete, 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 car, car, concrete, car. So that's one thing. If you're running around track, it's, it's track, 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 track. Mm-hmm. If you're running through the bush, it's dodge, you know, jump over the, the root, duck under the branch, wrestle the moose, you know, whatever else you're bumping <laughs> into out there. <laughs> Sounds much more interesting. Much, much more interesting. And that's why people like the sativas when they're running, because you can you can be like a, I don't know, action movie hero moving through a maze. Like you're really having a really, uh, an amazing time experientially because you're so focused and playful and creative. If you're an artist and you want to, you know, get more deep into a certain kind of, you know, if it's painting or singing or whatever, you're just going to be that much more focused and creative within the moment. So that sounds great. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> mm-hmm. you get some like dun 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 kind of <laughs> you know thriller movie music. If your brain has a lot of inflammation, that means you're going to have a neurotransmitter deficit. Because your body will use neurotransmitters as an anti-inflammatory. And uh, not to go too far afield, but that's the only way actual modern antidepressants work, is they're really crappy anti-inflammatories for your frontal cortex. So if you can get a better anti-inflammatory like cannabis, then obviously you're going to get better results. Mm-hmm. So here we have Jack, and he's been clinically depressed for three years, and he likes to drink a lot and eat things that are triggering inflammatory uh, cascades in his body and brain. And uh, he will not change his lifestyle, and he's thinking that cannabis may be, you know, the thing to do. If he was to ingest or smoke a pure sativa, I would bet money that Jack would have a panic attack or have a really deep self-loathing review of his inner world. Because if you're in a negative space, mm-hmm. and just imagine for your for a moment, Janine, that you're having a really bad day, okay. hopefully hopefully just for the next 30 seconds, but you know, <laughs> just imagine that. And then you get hyper-focused about how detail-orientated you can be about what's negative in your life. Mm-hmm. Now you've got a shopping list of problems. And you're being hyper-creative because of how sativa works. So now the bungee cord of your mind you know, can leap off into space with how negative and how creatively, you know, bad your life is going to be. It's mm. like, it's like hiring Stephen wow. King to your internal dialogue. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
So a little, little bit weird maybe as, as a, a thing to learn in, in this moment, but if you do have clinical depression and or uh, anxiety and or you have a chronic inflammatory condition, pure sativas are probably going to just make you feel really, really anxious and upset and impatient and weird. Well, I think that's a really good thing for people to know because a lot of people are depressed. However, there's always going to be, for whatever reason, 15% of people who can use a sativa extract or smoke a sativa, preferably through a vaporizer, because again, this is a medical conversation, and I'll get into Mm -hmm. why smoking is not medical in in a bit, if you like. Okay, yeah. So so with respect to, again, clinical depression and and using uh, that kind of uh, cannabis, and especially if your body is inflamed because of, say, arthritis, colitis, and uh, any of the chronically inflammatory autoimmune conditions that are out there, that's going to create the condition where you are neurotransmitter deficient. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, that's the only reason why a sativa is going to mess with you is because you don't have the neurotransmitters that uh, are... They're not available enough in the sense of the more positive neurotransmitters. So you will inevitably, you know, ingest your cannabis and focus on the negative. So that's why we always recommend people with those kind of conditions focus on the hybrids, especially during the day, because you don't want to take a pure indica if it's going to knock you out. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, indicas are supposed to make people more of a kind of, you know, yummy, cuddly, snuggly body high where you want to just hang out and, you know, be close to people and eventually curl up and go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a 15% of people who are going to take an indica and go completely somewhere else with it. So there's, you know, I think an 85% chance is a pretty good uh, statistical average to give something a try. Mm -hmm. But if you're new, as, as listeners to this, if you're new to the use of medical cannabis, please, please, please spend the time and the money talking to someone who really knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. If you dive into a, a, a dispensary, and nothing against dispensaries, there a lot of them are very, very credible, very, very ethical, very professional, but they're businesses. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, I mean, I've, I've worked in, I don't know how many different dispensaries as a consultant just to help patients understand, you know, what, what works and what doesn't for their condition. And uh, there's a contact high that happens in dispensaries. Mm. There's, I mean, it's not that everyone's high. It's that you're in a room full of a magically potent medicinal plant. And even if you're just in the room smelling it, it's going to change your attitude. So you're standing ac- across the counter from someone who's probably stood in the room for six hours <laughs> talking to people about the last time they got really baked on, you know, whatever it is that they got really <laughs> baked on. And it's not that that's the only conversation that happens. It's just that that's kind of the average you're going to expect. And these people, as good as the little angels that they are, are in a very interesting somatic mindset. Like they're, they're, they're kind of in kind of like, Hey, how's it going? Party mode. What's, what's up? You know, how can I help you get high? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So if, if you're, and it's, it astounds me the number of like baby boomers, retired, you know, elders who are going into these dispensaries just to see what they can do for them. Um, and, you know, maybe they've never had cannabis before, or the last time they had it, it was in the 1960s. And, you know, <laughs> something changed in their family or their religion or their mindset that made them feel very conservative about the whole thing. And, you know, they're, they're, they're shy, shy primate walking into the dispensary going, God, I hope this goes well. Uh, and then they talk to some, you know, young person who's super chill and hey how's it going man what can i get for you and the little old lady in the walker is going jesus christ i hope i don't <laughs> end up in some mental institution or something 
Because, I mean, that's one of the things that I think we really need to pay attention to as you know, cannabis becomes more of a, a part of medical culture is there's a lot of people that are crossing a very personally meaningful and potentially dangerous threshold. Mm-hmm. So, again, if you're new to this and you want to access this, talk to someone who really knows about it and make sure they can give you assurance as to what products, what kind of extracts, what kind of strains, uh, the do's and don'ts uh, for your condition. And especially someone who knows about how to maybe uh, work it with other nutraceuticals or herbs, because that's going to make sure you're not dependent on the high side of cannabis to get the relief you want for pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially if somebody is is new and wants to, it's interested in trying it, but they're afraid, you really want to get some expert advice. So this brings up a real fun word in medicine that we uh, use. It's called titration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So titration is the process of gradually increasing the dose of a medication uh, until you hit what you would call optimal result. Right. And you mm-hmm. want to probably, you're always trying to sneak up on it and always keep it a bit less than a bit more. And for a lot of people, especially in the cannabis culture, more is better because you're kind of committed to being high anyway. You might as well go for it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, again, just, just keep in mind that, that, uh, if you're new, be careful and, and follow that titration model. So, uh, start with something very, very simple, uh, and a small dose. And I would recommend everyone start with CBD no matter what, because if you're using cannabis uh, for medical benefit, mm-hmm. using CBD, especially three times a day, and the dose may need to migrate depending on how you respond to it with respect to sleep, mm-hmm. that's going to have more long-term regulatory benefit than taking 20 milligrams when you feel really bad. Mm, okay. so, so here's some Im- imagery. So imagine there's a construction site. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever spent much time in a construction site, but it's basically, let's get to the bar as soon as we're done work. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. okay. So, uh, no, I have not spent much time so, in a construction site. I used to site. do drywall professionally, so I'm ah, pretty familiar it. with that. Anyway, so imagine a, a construction site. And mm-hmm. there's a guy who shows up at nine in the morning. He's got a clipboard and he's got the white, you know, hard hat on because that's the foreman. Mm-hmm. And he's walking around the site and he's making sure that people pick up their stuff and they're they're doing things properly and everything's where it's supposed to be. So, Janine, I'm curious, what do you think would happen to your average construction site if the white hat uh, hatted clipboard guy left at 9.30 and never came back? Probably be a real mess. Yeah, by two o'clock, there's a barbecue in the middle of the show and then there's a case of beer opened up and then there's a nail gun war going on in the back rooms because, you know, why not? (laughs) So... CBD is, again, a deeply regulatory molecule for the entire physiology of human immunity. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like hiring two guys, with, or maybe one guy, one girl, just for fun. <laughs> they both have clipboards, <laughs> and they have to both wear the white hard hat. But now they're walking around the construction site regulating everything. Hey, do you need some help with that? Oh, look out, you're going to you know, put that nail through your hand. Oh, look, that nail, that board with nails sticking up is you know, lying in the middle of, of traffic, so let's move it. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at CBD, and especially, again, if you mix it with vitamin D, and you may not know this, Janine, but vitamin D is actually a hormone. It's not a vitamin. Mm-hmm. And it, function as an, it functions as an immune-regulating hormone. So if you've got vitamin D and CBD together, you basically have the best regulatory people running around the, the construction site of your body, reducing inflammation, increasing uh, tissue repair. CBD has actually been proven to increase bone growth in people with osteoporosis. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, holy cow, why aren't we all taking this every day? It should be in our breakfast cereal. Well, <laughs> well let me take that back. I don't recommend eating cereal of any kind, but right. <laughs> <laughs> if it's going to be in your breakfast smoothie, that would be a good idea. <laughs> Ooh, that gives me a really good idea for a cannabis product, actually. Uh, yeah, a, a powdered, uh, like I, I'm actually sipping on my morning protein drink while yeah. we're talking here. So, well, yeah, I could put a little in there. <laughs> <laughs> and again, CBD is not psychoactive, although right. although it does affect the body in the same way as a muscle relaxant. Mm-hmm. It does affect the body and the brain in the way that an anti-anxiety drug would. So although it's not going to make you high in the sense of, you know, dancing unicorns in your brain, mm-hmm. uh, you are going to feel pretty chill, pretty physically and emotionally calm and relaxed. And for some people, that's going to feel subjectively so different than their day-to-day life that they may actually feel a little bit altered. But mm-hmm. not I mean, not in the sense of your ability to drive, you know, raise kids, use power tools. You're not inebriated. You're just really chill. And if you're unfamiliar with that, well, welcome to normal. <laughs> welcome to how life should be yeah, well, instead of being stressed all the time. It's amazing how we adapt and, and just stick to, you know, what seems to be working, even if it sucks. Mm-hmm. Um. Michael, this is awesome. I'm really enjoying this, and I'm learning a lot, and I hope our listeners are too. You had mentioned earlier that smoking cannabis is not medical. Um, can you say a little bit more about that and vaporizing, using a tincture? How? Because I've noticed the onset of effect, the peak effect, the duration, all of that varies quite a bit with the method that you're using. Absolutely. So it's not that I I am in some way profoundly against smoking cannabis. I mean, I smoke sometimes if I'm hanging out with, you know, friends who do and I'll have a puff or something. But as a clinician and because my focus is complex chronic autoimmune disease, most of my patients are at their wits end. I mean, they've seen everybody. There's nothing else that's going to work. Mm-hmm. So for me to sort of give them a bag of weed and, a, you know, some papers and say, here, uh, I know it's uh, you're 85 and your hands are shaky, but if you can roll one of these fatties up and smoke it and not drop it in your wheelchair and burn yourself to death, you're going to be okay. Just rock that stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm visualizing that. Yeah, wow. I'm actually visualizing July 2018 when everyone starts trying to in- invent grow-ups in their house. The number of house fires is going to be hilariously scary. <laughs> anyway, so this is going to be a, a weird thing. And it brings up two really potent uh, opportunities for people around cannabis. So please just, if you're listening and you're thinking I might be a bit of a wingnut, uh, that's probably true, but be patient. This could still help you. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask you all to just take a moment and remember and accept and hopefully enjoy the fact that you're a primate. Hmm. Okay. And about 80% of your immune system, your physiology, your endocrine system, and the back of your brain is that of a primate. Mm-hmm. So if I was to sit there as a primate and maybe I'm getting some mange and I've got some inflamed joints and my feet hurt and I'm not really feeling like I'm the the most, I don't know, adaptable monkey in the, in the jungle. And then I smoke a big fat joint. <clears throat> and even before the cannabis effect comes on, my primate immune system, which is millions of years old, is going, holy crap, I'm in a forest fire. <laughs> or if you're a modern primate who lives in a house, oh my God, I'm in a house fire. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. 
So and this is why for a lot of people with inflammatory immune system stuff, when they smoke for the first 20 minutes, they're kind of jangly and restless. Like they're, they're, you can watch them. They're physically agitated. They're moving back and forth. They're scratching. They're, I'm kind of imitating that right now in my chair because <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I like to move around. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now you've got a person with an aggressively reactive immune system with a now suddenly more aggressively reactive immune system. And for that 20 minutes, it's basically a war between your ability to breathe, relax, and chill out and let your body, your primate body, relax into the effect of the THC so that you don't go kind of bonkers with it. Because if your body's all jangly and then you get really weird ideas, you might really have a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. And again, especially if you're unfamiliar with what this is like. Hmm. So again, if you're going to smoke and you're using a vaporizer, at least the temperature is a lot less and the number of burning minerals and metals going into your lungs, brain, kidneys, and bones is less. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because this is an important thing. And I, we, we talk about people who are chronic. They smoke three to five you know, heavy joints a day. And if you smoke more than that, well, I'd congratulate you. But as a doctor, I'm more worried than <laughs> wanting to congratulate you. <clears throat> So here we go imagining things. Here I am going to smoke a giant, big, fat, you know, joint of whatever yummy cannabis I happen to be, you know, wanting to smoke. I don't actually want to do that. But for imagery's sake, here I am doing that. Mm -hmm. And imagine that as every part of that plant material combusts and transforms into a different version of some molecule, I breathe that in. Mm -hmm. So imagine a meteor shower of burning magnesium and iron and zinc and other stuff falling into your lungs, falling into your bloodstream. Your body's going, oh my God, what do you do with that? It's an oxidized, you know, irritating, free radical producing molecule. Get rid of it. But your body just can't get rid of it because it looks like magnesium or zinc or iron or something. Mm-hmm. And now your body's trying to use that you know, altered zombie magnesium or iron to fit into the receptors for that needed molecule. And now you have regular healthy magnesium or something else floating through your body. It can't actually get to the receptor because you have a damaged metal or mineral uh, stuck in that receptor. And the body's like, I don't want that in there. It doesn't work. So it happens for a lot of people. And that's why people who are super chronic have gray skin. Oh. It's because their kidneys are completely overwhelmed with trying to deposit oxidized minerals and metals into their bones and brain. Interesting. Because at least that gets it out of your bloodstream. Uh-huh. Right? So two bad things about smoking right off the bat is it's going to turn your nervous system and your immune system to a more nervous status for about 20 minutes, and that may or may not be really dangerous for you. And it's going to fill your body up with oxidized minerals and metals. So at least vaporizing, you're getting less damage in that way. So I'm not against using a vaporizer because the uh, impact of your medicine is going to come on within about 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. So for people who need emergent relief care because you just banged your knee or you just got you know divorced or you just got whatever, you're going to want that. You're you're going to want your medicine now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who uh, obviously I'm going to promote using tinctures and and uh, tars and uh, extracts and oils more because medically they're more easy to test and they're more accurate to dose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is important. I, I think it's it, it, it has to be important, you know. So what I always ask people to do is, if you're going to use a vaporizer, um, and if you're at home and you've kind of committed your day to healing, at the same time you use your vaporizer, use your edible. Mm-hmm. Because the uh, whatever you vaporize or smoke is going to last about 90 minutes. And whatever you ingest, it's going to come on in about 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like someone planned it that way. Interesting. I'll say that because it's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
anyway, so that's a really, really big thing for people who require chronic pain management, chronic, uh, you know, for PTSD and stuff like that. But the ideal is, if you can, for medical use, figure out your ingestibles, your uh, other alkaloids from herbs and nutraceuticals to get the most benefit to your health instead of sitting there going, God, I hope I get the most benefit from my THC. Mm-hmm. Because we are we are kind of drinking the Kool Aid right now with with medical cannabis in in this part of Canada because now we can finally just get access to anything we want and play with it, mm-hmm. which is awesome. It's awesome, but medically, it's coming with some risk because a lot of people are just trying to quit their pharmaceuticals and just use massive amounts of cannabis to control their symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to be the first year for everybody once you decide to use medical cannabis. Uh, we're now a couple of years, two and a half years into doing this kind of in frontline care. And uh, it's been my experience that everyone for the first year is like a teenager. They're like, all right, okay, I got cannabis. Okay, great. I'm going to take care of my arthritis. <laughs> and they're having a great time with it. And then usually after that first year, they come back going, yeah, uh, not sure I want to spend the rest of my life baked every day. <laughs> does seem like kind of a waste. <laughs> well, it, do, it does limit, you know, certain things in, in, in life. So, again, it's, it's a really good idea to, to just look at it as a part of your entire health care model, not just, okay, now I'll use weed instead of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, one other quick thing about the primate thing. Okay. Because uh, I bring this up to just about every patient that I meet. If you have access to medical cannabis, especially a medical cannabis ointment or topical or solve or cream, rub that everywhere you feel pain. Rub that everywhere where you feel tense and sore. Rub that everywhere where you hold emotional tension. Because hmm. your primate brain, which is 80% of you and your immune system, hint, 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 if you have an illness, it's your immune system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So if you can rub your primate body with some really yummy cannabis and effectively change the way that your primate brain reads the world, because your primate brain reaches into the world through your nerves and muscles and bones, it doesn't use language. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to control ideas with ideas. It's a it's a monkey. It's like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking? I don't talk. Ah. Mm-hmm. So if you can reduce the signaling to your primate nervous system and immune system by putting some ointment on your skin, which will not make you high, you're going to suddenly feel like, wow, I'm actually doing okay. Because the opposite of okay, and I mean this with humor, the opposite of okay is cat food. <laughs> The number one reason people don't sleep well is because their primate nervous system is not allowing you to go deep into sleep because it wants to hear everything that happens in your house. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if you're in chronic pain, your immune system is going, I'm going to be eaten by a cat. I better listen to every creaking you know, door and window in the house because it might be the cat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here I thought you were going to say it's because you had cat food for dinner. But. Mm, well, I mean... <laughs> I think that's take, taking the paleo diet a bit far, but <laughs> but it's just to give people that appreciation that you know your body is a body, your personality is a personality. They live in the same house, but they don't really always get along unless you have a practice that helps them get along, like yoga, qigong, tai chi, you know, anything like that. Because mm-hmm. you know? if if you're not embodied in your body, your body's having an argument with the part of you that's that's ignoring it. Right. right. Hmm. Which is why I recommend all my patients get into some kind of embodiment practice, you know, whatever you pick. But if you're not taking care of that relationship, it will be the relationship that takes you up. Mm-hmm. So you recommend, you said Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga? Anything. Make something up. Put on some music. Dance. 
Is meditation included in that, or is that a separate topic? Well, I would say meditation is, but meditation is, as it's usually packaged in the West, is a, a very mind-centered experience. I mean, most people talk about meditation as a mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. <clears throat> not as an embodiment practice. Mm, and what's the difference? Um, one has to do with how you feel as, as a somatic state, as a postural state, as a visceral breathing animal like experience. Mm-hmm. And the other one is shh, shh, just, just shh, shh, calm down, shh, stop talking, shh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> or I'm going to happily affirm that all of my thoughts belong in my mind, even if they're very, very challenging. And I will give them a little hug and push them on the conveyor belt of thoughts, you know, and I've been teaching meditation for a long time. I've been practicing since I was 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> this is my 40th year or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can I plug something? It just popped Absolutely, please do. Uh, so I have a course, it comes up October the 16th, 2017. I'm not sure when your podcast goes up. You can join that course anytime you want. But uh, it's called Applied Meditation, and it's a 10-week training in all the different kinds of meditation, including seated meditation, but as an applied practice. Mm -hmm. So I'll do this really quickly. If you want to look at meditation in a simple way, like yin-yang, masculine, feminine, Mm -hmm. the feminine version is really about embracing all that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? So if I was to think of myself as Mother Earth, mm-hmm. and I'm birthing into my lap all that's come into being for the last four billion years, and I might be yeah, a little bit crazy because I keep you know doing this, and 98% of everything I've given birth to is extinct. Mm. So if we take that kind of Mother Earth metaphor, you're constantly birthing thoughts and feelings into being. And most of them are meant to become extinct because life is about change and growth and adaptation. Mm-hmm. So if you can embrace your past, your present, the good, the bad, the weird, as if it's just something that gives birth into being, and it's one of your children, and it's no one's fault that it's a bastard, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the sense of what it's doing with your your state of being, mm-hmm. then then you've hit that mindfulness place, which is I accept you, I love you, I will find peace and move ahead with more clarity. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, the masculine side of meditation is more like Krishna's sort of delusion, which is you just keep cutting through anything that is not what it is you're applying yourself towards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That could be a breathing practice, a postural thing, a martial arts thing, a specific walking meditation. Um, there's a thing you can do with lying meditation to deconstruct the, how trauma builds up in your meridians with respect to acupuncture. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that as an affirmational thing. You're going in there with the the mindset of a car mechanic to fix up some stuff in your car, mm-hmm. right? And okay. I mean, of course, you're going to be carrying the the feminine wisdom of acceptance and compassion with you. You're just going to go into that with a toolbox and the the kind of the masculine thing of now I'm going to go in here and change something, even if I have to kill it. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So it, it, for for me, I'm not saying one's better than the other. It's just one is fairly ubiquitous in the sense that most people just think of meditation that way. And the other one is usually only taught to martial artists or Jedis or uh, people who really want to go very deep into changing the inner workings of their entire being. Mm-hmm. And this is what your your course is going to be about? Yeah, it's, it's called mm-hmm. 10 Weeks of Applied Meditation, and uh, it's going to be about uh, 45 minutes to an hour of actual training, like lecture, science, basically to convince people exactly how and why this works. Because mm-hmm. most of us nowadays are, are kind of, we're all kind of research scientists, yes. and we all have internet, <laughs> so we all know some stuff. Mm-hmm.
so I really like to start that off with with every kind of process I do with people is here's the what and the why and the how. Now let's put it into practice and 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 really see what happens. So I'm really excited because I have I haven't taught that course before, uh, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a trip because I'm gonna be doing it online with people all over the world. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's exciting, and this should I think this will be up just before that. So. Perfect. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, okay, so is there anything else that you'd like to add? You'd you'd mentioned something to me um, offline about ancestral diet and how that ties in. Yeah, so an ancestral diet is essentially a diet that mirrors what your ancestors would have been eating before uh, basically big agriculture. Okay. So if you were to go back in time to when your ancestors were homesteading, mm-hmm. you know, cows and pigs and chickens and no cars and, you know, no rescue helicopters and <laughs> no doctors and, you know, this is like 6,000 years ago, which in the sense of evolution is a blink, mm-hmm. that would be a really healthy diet. Hmm. Because you'd be eating lots and lots of uh, vegetables, you know, stuff that's going to be in your root cellar all year. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be eating some animal stuff, but you're going to be eating also some animal husbandry things like eggs and, you know, obviously organic 6,000 year ago cheese mm-hmm. uh, or yogurt or kefir, kimchi, sauerkraut, uh, and maybe some of the food you're growing for your, your, your animals like oats or, you know, barley or rice or something. So that diet includes some grains, mm-hmm. but it also assumes you're going to be working 14 hours carrying cows around all day because <clears throat> you're a homesteader. <laughs> right, not sitting at a desk all day. Yeah, so that's kind of my tongue-in-cheek thing is if you want to go to a, a fairly easy-to-modify ancestral diet like a homesteader diet, you just have to remind yourself that you're going to have to be a really fit person to make that work in the long term. Mm-hmm. But at least you're getting rid of all of the processed, crazy, icky, blah stuff that's in stores now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's say you're a patient of mine and I've said, well, you know, Janine, maybe what you should do is try this homesteader thing and, and, and see what happens. And a couple of months go by and you're feeling pretty good. You've lost whatever you've wanted to lose with weight, uh, although you're in perfect shape, so I'm not talking about you. But <laughs> let's just say it's not working very well. So the thing we get people to do next is to go on what's called a real paleo diet. And I call it a real paleo diet because I have a problem with the modern paleo diet. Interesting. Okay. So again, I grew up on a hunting lodge, I'm part native, and I've been teaching wilderness skills for 32 years. So mm-hmm. I would love to take the top five selling paleo cookbook authors into the wilds and watch them try and grill meat. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. almost every paleo cookbook I've ever seen, it looks like gastro porn for barbecue salesmen. Interesting. And every, I mean, when you grill meat, you make it cancer-causing, inflammatory, and bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) and harder to digest. Mm -hmm. So when this is what I think I probably said the most is no self-respecting paleo person like myself Mm -hmm. raised by their grandparents, like anyone back in the day Mm -hmm. would ever cook meat over a fire on a stick. Hmm. So you see all these cowboy movies where some guy with a dead rabbit on a stick over a fire and you're like, you know, if you were actually a cowboy and you actually were taught how to live in the wilderness, you would never cook a rabbit that way because it would actually kill you eventually. How would you cook it? Uh, you'd poke a hole in its skin right around its belly button. You'd dig a hole in the ground and fill it full of coals. Then you put the rabbit wrapped up in a bunch of leaves and straw onto the coals. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you would bury it in more coals and then go to bed and wake up the next morning and have breakfast of juicy yummy rabbit where you would go through every 
every drop of fat, every bit of brain, liver, kidneys, and bone marrow. Because, mm-hmm. and look this up if you want, uh, there's a thing called rabbit starvation. If you just eat rabbit meat mm-hmm. every day as your primary source of food, you will be dead in three weeks. Wow. Why is that? Because rabbit meat has almost no fat in it. Oh. Right? So we have this weird, almost, you know, barbarically kind of sexual, like weird attachment to big, cheap punk, uh, pieces of grilled dead animals. And I mean, I, I, I likes me a steak when I have a steak, but um, having that as your primary way of relating to animal proteins and eating and cooking animal proteins will eventually get you into bed with cancer and Alzheimer's and some kind of inflammatory you know, autoimmune disease because it's the wrong way to cook that food. Mm-hmm. And now we think of it as like, you know, I I mean, I I wrote a gourmet cookbook a few years ago and um, watching all of the gourmet chefs do all of their stuff. I mean, these people are obsessed with destroying animal protein. Mm, mm -hmm. So what is the best way to cook in modern day? Modern day would be, and you don't need to cook it in a clay pot. You need to cook it as if you're using a clay pot. Hmm which is stews and stir fries and casseroles and, you know, roasting and all that kind of stuff. Got it. Yeah. So not, not saying you're not allowed to fry meat. I mean, like I said, I have a steak once in a while and I might as well have a good one. if I'm going to have one, mm-hmm. but that's not in my mind, uh, uh, an ancestral meal. That's sort of a Friday night fun thing to do with my kid. Got it. So let's say you're looking at this, uh, paleo diet, um, and you figured out that grilling meat is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Or ancestral, in fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to be eating a diet that's mostly centered around uh, a fairly equal ratio of fats and proteins. Okay. And then a huge amount of vegetables mm-hmm. and roots and, and uh, some nuts, some seeds, but primarily no grains and very minimal amounts of legumes. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to autoimmune disease, the reason why that's a really good idea is because most grains have a few fairly tricky antigens in them or things that make your immune system kind of mad. Mm-hmm. So if you can remove things that make your immune system mad, mm-hmm. like fried meats and you know whole grains and stuff for a while, then your immune system can go back to a much more gentler, friendly way of communicating with the rest of your body about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So let's say that didn't really work out. Okay. You know, you did your best. The next thing that I recommend people do is what I call an ice age diet. Now, I called it an ice age (laughs) diet because I like to make fun of things because I'm a bit of an asshole. (laughs) In in the stand-up comedy sense Mm -hmm. of of the Mm -hmm. So I picked that because I thought it made fun of the paleo diet and it made fun of me making up diets. So Okay. (laughs) Got to have some fun. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, if you actually look at evolutionary history, if you go back a couple of million years – uh, we've been going through this pulse and and retreat and pulse and retreat of glaciation or ice ages. Right. And when it comes to human evolution, what we adapt to makes us more us, mm-hmm. makes us better us. Mm-hmm. So the hardest things we've had to adapt to have made us the most us. Okay. And ice ages are the big, bad, scary black belt winner of forceful adaptation for everybody on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's a couple of million years ago and suddenly it stops raining. Hmm. Okay. And you and I are primates and we're living on a tree near the equator going, wow, it's getting kind of dry. And then there's no more leaves on the tree because the tree's dying. Mm-hmm. And then there's no more food for us to eat because all the little tubers and stuff and berries and leaves we like to chew on aren't around anymore. And then the forest turns into a bit of a zombie movie because all the predatory animals are starving to death too. Mm-hmm. 
So some of our ancestors, for whatever reason, literally two million years ago, headed to the beach near the ocean where they could find some freshwater runoff and started knocking mussels off of rocks and eventually getting the courage to walk into the, the water to pick up things like lobsters and crabs. Eventually, we got the courage to learn to swim. And I don't know if we have time to get into this, but um, there's no disputing that that's our original uh, adaptive origins. And we actually have as much to do genetically with, um, well, in terms of metabolic function, we have uh, as many things uh, going on to a porpoise as we do to a primate. Hmm. Yeah, humans are basically the descendants of beach monkeys. Beach monkeys. Cool. Uh, I like the name. I, I just think, where are you coming from? Hey, man, I'm a beach monkey, and I am not caffeine. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is an uh, Aboriginal person, in our language, the word we have for that world, and that's where in our old stories, and I've, I've traveled around and talked to Indigenous people all over the place, and they all have the same story. We all come from the water. Mm, interesting. The, the world of the north, where we sent, spent most of our life at the beach. And the, the word in our language for that, uh, I speak to Dene, and it's, uh, uh, the word is Niholilchil. Hmm. I'm not sure how that comes across with a microphone, because it's spoken mostly in the back of your mouth. Interesting, but. yeah. Say it again. Niholilchil. Wow, I don't even think I could say that. Uh, most people can't. Um, so, yeah, you have to train your tongue to do something really weird. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyway, so that word actually describes the experience of a baby at its mother's breast, sleeping and then feeding and then napping. Mm-hmm. It's also used to describe a very specific time of day and time of year. But um, yeah, so in our language, the word for that you know terrifying, scary, horrible world was pure sufficiency, great place to sleep, lots of food. Mm-hmm. Pure sufficiency. Now, what are we living in today? Scarcity, competition for resources, and all this other BS, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's a good question for you, Janine, just in the sense of intuition. Uh, where do you think most people naturally feel like going for a holiday? The water? By the equator, where it's warm, mm-hmm. and there's lots of drinks and fishes. Mm-hmm. So it's a race memory thing. I've always felt better by the water. Well, that's where we come Just ideas come to me, just feel more calm, more, I feel happy. I, I've always felt better by the water. Yeah, this is going to sound weird. I don't think I've ever actually said this on, on an interview before, but sometimes I disappear and people have no idea where I've gone. Uh-huh. I live in Nelson, so it's like a nine-hour drive to get to the ocean, mm-hmm. but sometimes I just wake up at like two in the morning and like, I'm going to drive to the coast now. Mm. And I get up and I drive to the coast and go and sit by the water for a day and maybe light a fire if I can and hang out. And then I drive home and people are like, you've been gone for three days, what happened? And I said, oh, I just had something to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we all come from that. So if you look at the Ice Age diet, it's a profoundly anti-inflammatory diet because most of it's going to be raw fish and plants that grow by moving fresh water. Mm-hmm. You know, like can you imagine what you'd feel like if all you ate was sashimi and avocados and I don't know watergrass? Mm, sounds pretty good. It's Probably incredible. Feel- I mean, I've had. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say you probably would feel pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I have a quick story. There was a patient several years ago came in, and uh, don't react to what I'm going to say if you're listening, but she looked like Jabba the Hutt. Mm. And I don't mean that in the sense of being overweight. I mean, her entire body was an amorphous blob, and it was gray. Mm. Poor thing. And she looked like she was just ready to, like, leap out of a window. She was in hell. 
And her story was very basic. She has essential gastritis, and every once in a while it gets so bad she has to stay in the hospital to get IV morphine to deal with the pain of her body eating itself up from the inside out. Oh, my goodness. Which is not fun. No. And this had gone on for 10 years. Wow. So she had gone to the emergency ward to get her big you know, thing of morphine because she was at her wit's end again. And whatever there, for, for whatever reason, the ER doc said, I think you're malingering and seeking drug use. I'm going to ask you to find other means to solve your problem. Hmm. He basically kicked her out of the hospital with no treatment. Wow. So she's crawling around the hallway of my clinic <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. And there's not very much I could do for immediate care because that was years ago before I could have maybe offered something around cannabis. But um, what I suggested was do everything you can, you know, for pain management without taking, you know, this class of drugs because it's going to make it worse and then go on the ice age diet. And I said, do that for seven days on uh, four days off, seven days on four days off for a month and then see what happens. And I never saw her again Wow, for about six months. And then this stranger ran up to me on the street and hugged me. And I kind of felt a little freaked out because I had no idea who they were. <laughs> and it was her. Oh, wow. And she had turned around profoundly chronic gastritis by eating anti-inflammatory food for days in a row and nothing else. Wow. That makes me emotional. That's Yeah. That's and it's, it's totally insane that that's just not like something you learn in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for myself as a patient uh, with Crohn's and colitis, you know, they're, they're both things that affect the membrane of your GI tract. And this is a fun thing to do. If you were to stretch out the membrane of your GI tract, it would be the size of a tennis court. Oh my goodness. And you actually have to rebuild that tennis court every four days in normal physiology. Wow, the cells turn over that fast? Yep. Wow. Yeah, so it's actually the most expensive physiological function in human effort and physiology, and I've only seen one paragraph about it in every textbook. (laughs) But imagine taking anti-inflammatory yummy sashimi-grade salmon or some ceviche, you know, which is Mm -hmm. a really delicious fish, and you're just rubbing that anti-inflammatory yumminess all over that tennis court-sized membrane making it all happy and healthy and allow it to repair itself without chronic inflammatory dysfunction. Wow. Right. So mm-hmm. every once in a while, I dive into the Ice Age diet to completely just drop the Crohn's and Calais activity in my body. And it's gourmet food. I mean, oh my God, what should I do for my illness? Try gourmet food. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't expect that. I walked away and went to see my doctor. I came out with a cookbook. What the hell? <laughs> And actually, I love that part of my work because literally people come into my office and they walk out sometimes with my cookbook going, oh, I'll just eat real food then. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. I, I like it. This has been wonderful. I really, really enjoyed this. You are obviously extremely knowledgeable and uh, and, and very experienced and um, you have so much to share. I would love to have you back on again because I had a big list of other things to talk about, but I think we're going to have to do that at another time. I would love to. This has been a really fun conversation. I think we, we get along really well and I, I hope the people listening to this appreciate my choice in trying to keep that balance between humor and just the geek out stuff because... I don't know. I, I would rather connect to people as me than as just some nerdy guy who knows stuff. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, if somebody's listening to this and they don't appreciate your humor, too bad. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps you should consider some real food in tennis. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, this has been great. So would you tell people how um, they can connect with you if they would like? I, I will also be putting the information on the website, but I think it's good to do it right here. 
Uh, so you can get a hold of me through my website, which again is integrativehealthsolutions.ca, uh, not .com. Uh, you can find me on iTunes if you look up Fusion Health Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel. It's integrativehealthsolutions.ca. Um, yeah, there's I've got books and courses and all the usual stuff that people uh, like me do on the internet. So if you're looking for some guidance or support or uh, something to get into, uh, feel free to get a hold of me. There's let's see, right now we have a 10 week health challenge program. It's like a cleanse. Then there's the meditation program coming up. There's Qigong teacher training for people who want to do that. Uh, we got a course coming up next year. It's gonna I'm so excited about this. It's gonna be called a uh, 100 days of 110 percent. Oh, what does that mean? 100 days of 110%. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, basically it's going to be uh, a very focused period of time for people to get into some really deep training into whatever it is they're they're going to choose to focus on. And we're going to have kind of a a five or six, you know, uh, very specific kind of tracks of focus for people. And you can do all six or you can do three or two or whatever you want to do. But the idea is to make it like a rite of passage where you journal every day and you focus on a very specific result. And there's no screwing around. There's going to be lots of community, lots of interactions uh, amongst all the people who do it. But I'm looking forward to that because I'm coming up on 50 years old and I'll be turning 50 during that program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I wanted to do it because I've been doing rites of passage and weird trainings uh, my whole life. And a lot of people don't really have much experience with that relationship. True. And I really wanted to see if I could help people dig into that. Because mm-hmm. it's it's amazing what happens to people when they commit to themselves, stick with the course, get the result, and then that's be- that becomes who they are. It becomes who they remember themselves to be. Mm-hmm. And that's that's everything. If you remember yourself as someone who you don't like, you gotta you gotta change that up. Right, right. Wow, that's exciting. Well, I want to thank you so much, and we definitely are going to talk again. And um, yeah, this has been this has been really delightful. It's been great for me too. Thanks, Janine. Oh, you're very welcome. You've been listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Michael Smith. And if you haven't already done so, please go to the podcast website, which is realjanine.com, J-A-N-E-A-N, and check out my other conversations with other interesting people. I hope you learned something new today that you can use in your life, and take care and 